A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Namaste, my friends. This is Alec Vishal Rubin, here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. It is my true pleasure to introduce my teacher and inspiring yogi, Ty Landrum, Ashtanga Vinyasa practitioner and director of the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado. You know, we're all uh, looking to connect. We're all looking to escape from the tyranny of our own you know, negative thoughts and feelings. We're all looking for connection. We're looking to sort of wake up to uh, the intimate, the, the, the real nature of our intimate relationships with one another. Ty talks the talk in walks with dedication towards sharing authentic yoga. We are excited to have you, our Yoga Revealed community, tuning into the podcast today. Listen with excitement and love for yoga as we dive into this week's episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Yoga Revealed Podcast. Hope you're having an amazing day, whatever you're doing. And we hope that the podcasts have been illuminating the depth of yoga that is readily available for you. Today, it brings me such joy to introduce a really incredible individual, Ty Landrum. He is the heir to the Yoga Workshop, which sounds really cool. Uh, he's the director here at the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado. Um, the Yoga Workshop was opened in 1987 by Richard Freeman, and Ty is a longtime senior student of Richard, and uh, he is truly someone who just stumbled into my own life when I was personally looking for not someone, but a teacher to I'm going to use the word illuminate again, the, the, the depth and the path of yoga. He not only is so dedicated to his own practice, but he, he walks it and he talks it. And it's really uh, apparent when he walks in the room. He is someone who's so intuitive, and, and that is something that I have a high amount of respect for. So, Ty, thank you so much for inviting us here to the yoga workshop and uh, sharing with us the yoga as it's been found in you. Thank you, Alec. Totally. It's Thank nice you, to be man. Here. Thank you. We'd like to start off with just a little synopsis of who you are and where you came from. I recall that you were once upon a time a professor and just how that evolution came from then to here and uh, <laughs> teaching Mysore. Well, let's see. I'm, I started um, practicing Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga about the same time that I started uh, a PhD program in philosophy at the University of G Virginia. So that was back in 2005. And um, I um, was going through a really difficult time in my life when I began the practice. And um, yoga was something that uh, had previously uh, seemed sort of, I don't know, silly, maybe absurd to me. And um, so I wasn't... Uh, too into the idea of trying it out, but um, you know when uh, things got as difficult as they did, mm. and I got down to the point where I was kind of willing to try anything to dig myself um, out of the hole of despair that I'd fallen into, uh, I was open to yoga. So I, <laughs> um, 
my first yoga class was an Ashtanga Vinyasa class. It was a full primary series class, and it was um, totally uh, unreasonable. You know, <laughs> I found it just that uh, I I couldn't believe that the um, the woman who was running the class, who became a dear friend of mine and great teacher, Jennifer Elliott at Ashtanga Yoga of Charlottesville. Like, I just couldn't believe the things that she was asking us to do. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So there was that immediate attraction. And, um, you know, as so many uh, people who stick with this practice, what happened to me on that first day was I really felt something sort of move within me. And um, I felt that there was a potential within the practice um, for transformation that I could feel even on that first day. And... um, it was it it was and has been and remains my pursuit of that potential and of that transformative process that keeps me doing yoga. Um, so I did finish my PhD um, in uh, 2011. I graduated and um, I, I taught philosophy at University of Virginia um, throughout that time um, as a graduate assistant and then. Uh, after I graduated, I was at the um, the, uh, the uh, Center for the for Advanced Cultural Studies um, at the University of Virginia as a postdoctoral student, um, and um, I was offered a, a position as an assistant professor um, at the University of Virginia, which I couldn't seem to get away from. Um, and I had sort of tentatively accepted, and then I came to Boulder in, um, in, I guess it was summer of 2013, uh, and I met Mary and Richard and the woman who's now my wife, Shayan, and fell in love with this place, and they asked me if I wanted to teach here, and I, um, in a a moment of... uh, brilliant irresponsibility, <laughs> canceled <laughs> my appointment uh, at UVA and, and stayed here. And um, it was a good move. Cool. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. You know, could you just share a little bit that I don't want to say that is separate from the modern world of vinyasa, but for those who don't know what Ashtanga was, I personally started out not in Ashtanga, so I had no idea that there was this more traditional form of practice. Could you illuminate that a little bit? Sure. I mean, so the, so the Ashtanga Vinyasa system, uh, as we know it, um, was um, uh, put together by Sri K. Patabi Joyce, who was uh, the teacher of my teacher, Richard Freeman's teacher. Um, and he lives, lived in uh, Mysore, South India, where Richard studied with him. And um, it was... A system that was put together based on principles that Batabi Joyce learned from his teacher, Krishnamacharya, um, and uh, the principles that Krishnamacharya uh, learned uh, from uh, Mohan, uh, Rama Mohan Brahmachari. And uh, there's really no telling exactly how old those principles are or where exactly they come from because they come from a practice lineage um, that isn't heavily documented, um, but there is some interesting scholarship coming out recently that's at least sort of v- validating the, uh, the view among most serious practitioners in this lineage that uh, the principles have been um, evolving and can be traced back in something like a recognizable form, uh, at least to the Middle Ages. So... Um, uh, those, that's exciting research, um, but it, it certainly isn't surprising to anybody who's really looked deeply into the system um, because it has a sort of uh, depth to it that um, seems like it could only come from a system that's mm. evolved through many, many generations. Cool. Thank you for that insight. Sure. What do you find in your own experience has revealed itself from a consistent daily practice hmm. within asana and meditation? Yeah. Um, there isn't any single one thing that comes to mind. I mean, certainly, 
you know, the process of doing yoga is a process of sort of continually uh, uncovering, you know, pe peeling back the layers of your mind and, um, you know, continue continually sort of uh, sloughing off the malt of your conditioning and um, uh, letting go of whatever kinds of ideas you've been temporarily in the grip of, letting go of uh, certain preconceptions that define your experience. And the more that you practice, the more that you become um, aware of how uh, the aware of your own mental conditioning and aware of it of how it affects your experience and it's often not until you sort of let go of something that it becomes apparent to you that you were carrying it all along um, and so, so there's a sort of process of sort of unfolding um, unfolding your your ego and unfolding your personality um, and that the, the effect of that process is that you feel, at least in my experience, I have felt, you know, in the, uh, it's only been 11 years since I've, since I started this practice. Um, but I, from, from the very first year, I have done the traditional um, practice week of practicing six days a week, and I've never taken a break um, or, or missed uh, for any significant period of time, for any reason, and th and the process has been one of uh, I feel sort of continually lighter. Mm. Um, I feel uh, that m my sense of myself um, is increasingly sort of I guess, for lack of a better word, truthful. <laughs> um, and I, you know. I mean, maybe it's better not to describe it in terms of where I've arrived, because I don't think I've really arrived anywhere. It's part of a process. I have no idea where it goes. I'm certainly right in the middle of it. Um, but the experience has been one of sort of letting go of uh, lots of um, self-judgment, letting go of lots of delusion, letting go of lots of uh, vanity, um, aggression, um, and... Uh, that's really, um, it's really liberating. Mm. It's really exhilarating. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. What, what do you think we could say to the modern world yoga family to motivate them to try and come to this practice, to Ashtanga Vinyasa, to give that a shot? Because I think, uh, you know, many people in just the Vinyasa public classes um, I started out there, and those are my roots personally. That's where I first had an introduction to yoga, you know, to some extent, thanking the, the gurus that brought yoga over here to the West as an exercise form. Mm -hmm. And then naturally, I became thirsty. And that was my own experience. But, sure, yeah. And yeah. I think that's a really natural experience. And I think that, um, you know, the reason why uh, so many people are interested in, in yoga, whether they're doing yoga at a gym, whether they're doing a very sort of fitness-oriented form of yoga, or whether they're doing something that's more rooted in a traditional practice lineage, um, we're all looking for the same thing. You know, we're all uh, looking to connect. We're all looking to um, uh, escape from the tyranny of our own you know, negative thoughts and feelings. We're all looking for connection. We're looking to sort of wake up to uh, the intimate, the, the, the real nature of our intimate relationships with one another. And so I think it's a natural process and it doesn't matter how one gets into it or where one starts, one always ends up exactly where they belong. And um, so I'm reminded of, a, um, of a, something that was said by a certain Indian teacher who was being encouraged by some of his disciples to sort of, you know, take up social media and try and attract more people to his teachings. And huh. he said, um, he said, the, the bees come to the honey. The honey doesn't go to the bees. Huh. <laughs> so, yeah, that. yeah, so I think, you know, I think that as if, if, you know, as Ashtanga practitioners and teachers, when we start to feel um, like we really want to share the depth of this practice with others. Um, I think that there's the, the best thing that we can do is really just 
embody the depth and the transformative potential and the benefits of the practice ourselves, you know? And uh, if, if we just embody that and we live it, then those who are ready to uh, undertake this practice will be drawn to it and um, will be better uh, conduits for the current of the practice. And then we can better, you know, pass it on to others. Mm. Mm. Nice. I think uh, when, when resistance shows up, in the practice, mm-hmm. whether it is in this realm of the, the six-day-a-week practice that we strive for in the Ashtanga practice or just an aversion to wanting to show up, mm-hmm. how should we respond? How, how have you responded to that in your experience? When like, yeah. Whether it's your body aversion, physical, or even mental. Sure, sure. So the, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that the, your resistance to the practice is the very material that the practice works on. Um, it's essential that you have resistance to the practice, you know, whether you feel, whether you experience that resistance as tension in the hamstrings or pain in the SI joints, or as a general sort of lethargy, or even as a sort of dread at experiencing strange kinds of, uh, sensations and emotions that come up when you, uh, undertake the practice. I mean, no matter what it is, the resistance is really, uh, the material that you're working with, um, because in the practice we're trying to sort of uh, cultivate an ability to step back from our uh, sort of the impulsive movements of the mind mm. and uh, allow them to move through us and maybe sort of sequence out of us without uh, tensing around them, right? Mm. I mean, that's. The, the, the process of letting go of our mental conditioning uh, is experienced like that. It's experienced as an encounter with resistance um, that you somehow uh, f- find the ability to simply be, you, you be present with that resistance. You be present in that encounter. You, you fully allow yourself to experience it, to experience your own resistance without perhaps embodying it in the way that you, that you normally would. In other words, without acting out your resistance, right? Mm. You could feel your impulse to uh, say certain words to yourself, right? But you don't have to actually believe them, right? So you can feel, you can hear the voices in your head that say, you know, I'd really be better off staying in bed today, or I really, you know, I think I, you know, this doesn't feel right. It feels a little too intense. Maybe, you know, I should say, or this just feels terrible. (laughs) I think I should go take up cycling, you know, or whatever it might be. Um, And that, that you can experience all of that without actually sort of believing it, without identifying it identifying with it. And so when you allow yourself to experience your resistance, the idea is um, you you allow yourself to experience it without uh, enacting it, then this sort of psychical energy that underlies those impulses in your consciousness, the psychical energy that underlies what are called your samskaras, gets released. And then those samskaras, or tendencies, are a little less ingrained just a little bit less ingrained. Mm-hmm. And over long, long periods of time, then those samskaras get reduced. So your uh, tendencies to reactive behavior <laughs> themselves get reduced. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. I find and, that uh, it's helpful, at least in my own psyche, to be able to bring this concept into a word. And that's mm-hmm. the beauty of Sanskrit. And mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. this word dvesha? Aversion, or is that? I guess that's sure. Well, we're te- yeah. I mean, the you know your 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 aversions um, are. I guess one could say they're part of the material of the of the practice. You know, um, but your attachments are part of the material of the practice too. So raga. Yeah. Yeah. So you can feel. You know, you can have different kinds of attachments, and you know, maybe these attachments are taking the forms form of things that are sort of uh, unhelpful to the practice, you know, like maybe certain kinds of, you know, addictive behaviors, whether it's to food or drugs 
or sex or to certain kinds of, you know, other kinds of sensory stimulation, you know, maybe in the digital world, for example, or whatever it might be. Um, or even, I mean, what you can come to realize through this practice is that, you know, the ego itself is a very sort of addicted, addictive entity. And so even your sort of cycles of thought, you can have, you can have deep addictions just to certain patterns of thought that may or may not be, you know, particularly uh, unhealthy. I mean, they might not be the kinds of things that people usually sort into the category of, you know, addictive substances, you know, but they're simply lines of thinking that might be sort of negative or, un or unhelpful, right? Or maybe they don't even present as, as negative, but there's something maybe a little lacking in depth to them, or maybe they simply uh, are really quite positive, but they function f to distract you from the present moment, right? And so it's breaking those patterns of thought whether they take the form of attachments or aversions, whether they take the form of negative emotions or ones that we might normally think of as being somewhat positive, the ability to sort of uh, witness those, or rather experience those uh, various patterns as wanting to arise within us and then allowing their psychical energy to be released is something that we do through a sort of take by taking a sort of dispassionate posture toward mm -hmm. our own experience and and so in Sanskrit that's called vairagya mm -hmm. vairagya is kind of dispassion to, toward your own mental upwelling <sighs> yeah <And> neurosis. <laughs> exactly and so in the um in the 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 ashtanga vinyasa practice is um, it involves, as you know, uh, great focus. It demands um, really razor sharp, unbroken attention to uh, what it is that you're doing. You're watching your breath. You're watching the sensations that are moving through your body. You're watching your postural alignment. You're watching how you're moving in and out of the postures and you're, you're sort of embodying all of that. You're allowing yourself to sort of be absorbed in all of that. And then of course, all of these thoughts and feelings start arising within that container of this very precise movement. And it's uh, an invitation to distraction, mm. right? <laughs> and so by the, the practice is asking you to focus on what you're doing and focus on what you're feeling as well, but without it taking over your bodily movements without it inclining you to twitch or gesture in a certain way or to say something or to be pulled off center from experiencing this sort of rhythmic flow of your breath, mm -hmm. right? And so that's cultivating vairagya. That's mm -hmm. cultivating this ability to experience all of these things that are coming up without acting them out. Mm. Oh. It's really brilliant in that way, the way it, the way it works, the way that gets you to focus. And how do we... On so many levels, it's getting you to focus on so many levels at once, you know, by telling you, by, by there's a, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a whole ritual of movement that's, that is animated by breath and that also has built into it specific gazing points with your eyes, mm. right? So all of the senses are sort of being reined in and focused on what's arising in the present moment. The exactly. How do we take that single pointed focus mm -hmm. of varagya, that dispassion, that non-attachment in this practice and, and take it into the world? It just happens. I mean, you don't even have to. I, I think if you, if you really devote yourself to the practice, the vairagyam, it begins to, it be, it, you cultivate it. You mm -hmm. know, you're cultivating this focus, this, this sort of inner that there's there's an inner heat that develops and which is sometimes called tapas mm. which is like the friction that arises from holding the mind right between right in that sort of balance point between creation and dissolution between going out on a certain line of thought or just letting it go you're holding right in the center to allow yourself to experience the thoughts that are arising without getting carried off mm. by their currents and that's the tapas, and you, this is something that, that builds in you over time, and you just, you, I mean, you can't help but take it with you.
it goes with you, you know, because cool. it's inside you. Yeah. And so what ha- and then so in your daily life, you find you start finding yourself less reactive. You start um, and of course, you know, it's your daily life and all of your your sort of own, you know, personal concerns, your loves, your fears, etc that you're bringing with you and because they're a lot they're in your body and you're bringing that into the practice. That's what's coming up. That's what you're experiencing and seeing. And so the practice helps sort of decontextualize all of that for you so that you you can experience these sort of different waves of emotion without getting caught up in the story that usually gives them context. And so you're sort of releasing, so you're releasing the sort of energy behind some jealousy or some anger or some, some you know, sort of emotion like that that, you know, ordinarily might be somewhat destructive in your life. And you come into the practice and you practice and you're releasing that, the energy. And then when you go back and think about, you know, the story, you're thinking about it from a place that is less emotionally laden, mm-hmm. you know, and you can see yourself more clearly as a mm-hmm. character in that story, you know, being wrapped up in a particular, you know, emotional or it's sort of caught in a particular emotional vibration. Absorbed. Yeah, absorbed. And you can kind of see the humor in all of it. Yeah. And then it's like you don't have to be uh, wound up in that story anymore because mm. it just kind of unravels as soon as you start to look at it that way. You know, I think for me, I don't want to harpoon the subject, but at the same time, I've only been practicing for four years, and I feel that in my first half of that time, mm-hmm. I saw this practice as a complete different entity almost than my relationships with myself and the world. Uh-huh. And uh, I and I don't know if others align with this. The listeners can kind of resonate with that. But I think and only until I found a more dedicated um, walk into this path is when I slowly saw those two mold within and I could see that this practice is the relationship mm-hmm. with Beautiful. the world and with myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Definitely wanted to share that. Yeah, nice. That's very nice. You know, Ty, I uh, I love your blog posts. They're amazing. Oh, they're, thank and you. they're so uh, um, you don't do them every day, and you don't do them every week, and that's something <laughs> I really <laughs> appreciate. You probably don't have that much time on your hands to do that right now, but no. um, you have this one blog post, and it says crying in yoga. Mm. And I remember when you posted it, I I read it, and mm. I like understood a third of it. Mm. You know, some of it I was just like I I kind of. There are big words in it <laughs> and then some that I did not understand. And I'd love to talk about that. Sure. I think it's a sensitive topic. Sure. Because sure I know that a lot of, you know, half pigeon in a public yin class, there might be some like tear that just flows through or sure, sure. even uh, maybe getting out of the practice. Like, how do you feel about the, the crying in yoga and the crying outside of the practice, which is still our yoga? Yeah. Yeah. Sh- share some words with crying in yoga. Yeah, sure. Well, um, like I, I definitely want to premise talking about this by saying that I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a friend of crying. <laughs> crying is a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful response, and it's cathartic, and um, and uh, sometimes it's exactly what you need is to release emotion in that particular kind of way, um, and uh, because crying can be part of um, experiencing. Um, an emotion really, really fully, I think. But also, there's a, there's a different perspective on this too, which is, I guess, uh, which is, you know, at least I'm pitching it as uh, a sort of yogic one. I'm not saying it's the yogic one, but I, there's a yogic perspective uh, on, on crying, which is sort of drawn out from this uh, notion of vairagya and this notion of uh, being able to experience our emotions without acting them out, according to which we can actually experience our emotions sometimes more, uh, m- perhaps more rawly, more, raw, that's not really a word, in, in a sense that's more raw and more uh, complete and um, maybe more multidimensional mm. by um, experiencing them in a way that's sort of decontextualized. Okay? And so... Um, uh, the the idea is that I mean, I mean look there are various emotions that can uh, incite crying and it's not so sadness certainly comes to mind when we talk about crying but um, excitement can also bring you to tears and um, 
feelings of sort of of uh, sort of sentimental um, mourning can bring us to tears, but also just um, being really inspired by something that we uh, feel to be a sort of deep beauty can bring us to tears. And um, but I think that um, in yoga, at, at least one practice that we might undertake. Uh, one internal practice that we might undertake is trying to experience those kinds of emotions without allowing the sort of prana or vital force behind them to run through the normal channels. If it runs through the normal channel channels, we might express those emotions in in the, the ways that um, give a sort of conventional face to those emotions, right? Like a sad face and crying, right, over something particular that's arising for us in the present moment. And the idea is that if we allow the prana to move through the channels that it normally moves through when we experience the emotion, that we might actually reinforce our propensity for feeling that emotion. So it might not be cathartic. Hmm. Do, you, do you see what I mean? Hmm. Sort of as if, you know, if we sort of continue to sort of cry and cry about the same things over and over. We just sort of reinforce this particular habit of mind of, you know, feeling sad about something, um, mourning something. Um, And uh, there's, you know, this with any process of mourning, there's certainly a stage where, you know, acting out the the grief, the sadness is... um, is perfectly natural and perfectly healthy, um, but then there's there's a point at which, um, you know, one might think that we that it should be let go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, there there are certain things that happen to a person that I think maybe you know you sort of you can sort of feel sad about or feel a sense of of mourning, um, you know, for a very long time. But um, there's this, this ability to sort of evolve past our emotional traumas is what yoga is trying to teach us. And so when we're ready to um, to sort of move on, you know, we might undertake this practice of trying to, you know, allowing ourselves to experience old traumas or memories of old traumas, which get released in the course of breathing and stretching our tissues and allowing those emotions to course through us without allowing them to go through the normal channels, without allowing ourselves to cry, mm. right? And so we're def- what I'm talking about is not suppression. We're not suppressing the crying. That also reinforces the emotion, mm-hmm. um, maybe even more so than acting it out. I don't know. Um, but, that, but, there, but it is possible to uh, release the energy behind an emotion without tensing around it in any of the number of ways that would create the normal physiological uh, dimensions of that particular emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So like with sadness and crying, right, or sobbing, right, or with anger and having you know, the heart start racing and, you know, the diaphragm gets tense and you know, maybe the stomach muscle and across the chest, chest you kind of tense up or an anxiety feeling, you know, the back of the neck start to clench and, you know, you pull, kind of pull the chin back as if you're trying to retreat away from. Um, so, you know, all these different emotions have their different sort of physiological manifestations. And the idea is that we can experience them without manifesting those physiological indicators of the emotion. And um, when we do that, we can experience the emotion in this really sort of raw way, which is to say we can just experience its sort of its sort of raw psych- psychical energy. We can experience the prana of it, and we can allow it to move out of us, right? Mm. But instead of clenching around it in any of those ways, we totally relax, we exhale, we remain centered, in our awareness and in our body, and we just let it course through us. And when this happens, you experience this sort of when when those kinds of in those moments when the energy of an emotion or something gets released, there's a sort of heightening of the senses. There's a you know, I mean, it's it's as if you know your your hearing or your eyesight or your ability to sort of feel with the surface of your skin can suddenly be 
enhanced to a sort of astonishing degree because the soprano is sort of moving out of view. And this is, you know, this is profoundly exhilarating. And um, I think this is the, the, the true exhilaration of yoga comes just there. Mm. Profound. Mm. Truly. <laughs> and I think that's authentic to your experience. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I do, I've done my fair share of crying in yoga too, but especially in the beginning. Um, yeah. But um, you know, I think you you sort of you can start sort of working with your emotions on um, uh, differently with some with some practice. Mm-hmm. So. Nice. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your experience as a Mysore instructor, and prefacing that with what is Mysore and you know, I I feel that the the experience of teaching a Mysore class, then teaching um, a, a lead vinyasa class in the public, is vastly different in the light of the energetics, mm-hmm. um, the the orchestration of the energy in the room, mm-hmm. um, in light of who's showing up in student, and as you as the the space holder, as the teacher, in my own eyes, you you have this just incredible ability that you meet people where they are but more so you're so intuitive Mm -hmm. to seeing what someone quote-unquote needs in the practice Mm -hmm. or where their body is because perhaps your body's been there and that's the beauty of you having such a advancing in embodied practice where Mm -hmm. I don't want to say it like you have the most advanced practice in the room which is most likely probably true but at the same time it's like you know where everyone is Mm -hmm. Because you've been there. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think the beauty is of your Mysore teaching. But can you kind of just express like what it's like for you to be a Mysore teacher? Yeah. Um, so, well, to, so to start with your first question. So Mysore is the sort of traditional practice setting for Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. It's, um, the, the classes are named, of course, after the... Uh, the the city in South India where Patabi Joyce lived and where his grandson Sharat Joyce now teaches, um, and um, th- the classes basically follow the format that Patabi Joyce used to teach um, Ashtanga to his visit to his students. And my understanding is that Krishnamacharya used a very similar format to teach. Um, the principles of Ashtanga to uh, Patabi Joyce. Um, and so it's unlike other uh, more conventional yoga classes in that um, the, 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 the classes are not guided uh, vocally step by step by the instructor and the students are not all moving in unison and they're not all even doing the same uh, s- series of postures. Um, in Mysore classes, uh, the practitioners uh, work individually on the Ashtanga sequencing, and um, the the sequencing is taught in, uh, individually to each specific person um, by the Mysore instructor. And uh, so once everybody sort of gets going and they're sort of working on their sequencing, one thing that's really nice about it is that it's quiet. <laughs> so you don't have to listen to word. You don't have to he- hear the voice of another person, you know, echoing continually throughout the room as you're doing your practice. And this is really important to the kind of practice that it is and to your sort of ability to, uh, to focus on what's happening for you in the present moment, but also to sort of get out of this sort of analytical, conceptual mm. frame of mind. I mean, it's the the practice is inviting you to experience what's going on in your body viscerally and without the mediation of your preconceptions about what you're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so there's um, and that this that's a very difficult sort of thing to impart, a very difficult thing to to even just sort of communicate in a way that. Um, students can totally get but the Mysore setting helps just it just creates the right conditions for people to sort of slip into that state of awareness Mm -hmm. where you're really just you're just you're feeling 
what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're feeling your movements, you're feeling your body, you're feeling all of these tensions without rushing to, you know, put a name on what you're experiencing. Say, oh, this is, you know, now I'm experiencing anger at so-and-so. Now I'm experiencing mm-hmm. sadness at this particular event. Now I'm experiencing pride at, you know, my ability to do this or that. Or now I'm experiencing longing for, you know, one thing. It's, so, and that's an important part of the, the, your ability to experience your emotions as being sort of decontextualized, right? So, um, so teaching Mysore, I, I think similarly, um, is something that, you know, uh, demands that you slip into that same state of mind. And so, um, when I'm, when I teach Mysore, I, uh, I, I focus on my own breath too, Mm. while I'm watching so that I can remain sort of centered in my own experience of my body. And then I'm watching other people practice and, uh, and there's a sort of, um, a sort of, I guess, an empathic experience of what they're experiencing while they're in the posture that then I feel in my body while I'm watching them. And, um, based on that information and what my body sort of wants to do or how it wants to move in order to sort of bring about a sort of balance of elements that feels most sort of potent, um, that's, that's what moves, that's what animates me to do adjustments or to just move on or, um, and, uh, so it's a very sort of, I guess it, it is, it is a very sort of visceral sort of body-based, um, experience to teach Mysore. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. Mm. Neat. <laughs> it's neat. It's definitely a, it is. And it's, 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 it's a great honor to teach Mysore and, um, um, because when people come into a Mysore class, um, really any yoga class, but I think, I mean, I would venture to say that this, that it might be, um, even more so in a Mysore class when people come to practice Mysore, they're making themselves really vulnerable. You know, they're, they're making themselves vulnerable to their own judgments. They're making themselves vulnerable to the, you know, to the, to the eyes of others. And, and especially most of all to the person that's, you know, watching, which is the teacher, mm-hmm. you know, and so it's, um, it's really touching and it's, there's a great deal of, um, you know, a great deal of trust that has to be there in order for the whole thing to work at all. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's a real honor and I guess, um, you know, it's, um, I think what is, you know, the, 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 the thing that sort of gives the, the thing that sort of gives you that sort of touchstone, that visceral touchstone that for you to be able to, to do what a Mysore teacher does, I think is a, is a deep well of, you know, the kinds of things that develop through a daily devoted personal practice. And I think when you, when you're, when you be when you start to play that role, if that, if, you know, the world sort of sorts itself out so that you fall into the role of teaching Mysore, then you have this, you know, profound responsibility suddenly um, that is a responsibility not just to yourself, but to everyone that you teach to not just show up and practice every day, but to do it with real <sighs> presence, with real fullness, with real, like you have to, you know, if, when I, so I, I always practice in the mornings before people start arriving. So I get here, you know, between four and four thirty, and um, it's you know I'm and I always I always feel that sense that people are going to start coming in around six fifteen, and you know and I, and I can't you know ask anyone to do anything or encourage them to do anything that I didn't do myself you know, and that means, and especially on a sort of energetic level, you know, that, you know, how much work did I do? How aware, how focused was I when I practiced? How aware was I, you know, how, how, how sort of, you know, 
attuned was I to what was going on? How much surrender did I have in my own practice? You know, how, how much did I sort of let go of in the practice? And it, it, it become, those, those questions become really sort of, um, they, they become, they became much heavier for me when I started teaching Mysore. Yeah. And especially, and then of course, in teaching at this place, which has a great history to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, um, yeah, I, I feel the weight of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think to speak for the community here, we're so blessed to have you here. Thank you so much. Thank just, you. Just doing my duty. <laughs> I think that's a example to us all. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, let's talk about you being a father for a minute mm, and uh, right. how, how you being a father has shifted your practice uh -huh. in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it, uh, it, it, it's shifted my physic, my, my physical practice some in that I now, you know, I, I, most days I'm limited to two and a half hours of practice and, um, which, so, you know, I, I, I do about two hours of asana here and then I have a, a pranayama practice that takes me about half an hour, which, uh, you, you know, that I, I usually get to do when I go home, but it's, it, it's sometimes it's sometimes derailed by my beautiful daughter. Um, <laughs> so she's she? eight months old yeah. now. Yeah, and um, uh, you know, and and my wife is just so supportive of of me and of of this the yoga workshop and of the students here. And so I mean, in 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 a sense, I'm really fortunate um, to be you know, playing this role and, and my wife also agrees that, you know, it's essential to anyone who play this role to be fully immersed in the practice. And so we arrange things so that it, it works out that I can do that. Um, and so that, I mean, that's, that's a real gift. Um, mm. how, like what else can I say about that would be more interesting about how it's changed my practice? I mean, it, I mean, it softened me, mm. you know, seeing her come into the world and um, holding her in my arms for the first time means something just melted wow. in my heart. And wow. uh, um, yeah, I still feel that. I still feel, I guess, a certain softness that I never felt before just from that, you know, from that love, and, which just saturated my heart and... Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> sure. That's great. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so it's, you know, I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. And it's, you know, it, it, I guess it, it shifts. Um, I remember a very dear friend of mine once who had children, um, for the, who had his first child maybe about five years before I did, said that, that um, he felt that his life was no longer all about him mm -hmm. and that that was the best thing that ever happened yeah. to him. And yeah. I guess, yeah, I could echo that same that sentiment. Sense. Yeah. Cool. Love that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you feel defines a well-balanced yoga practice? And hmm. how could our listeners kind of do a self-check-in with themselves so they may continually be in a state of growth? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. I mean, yoga can take so many forms. You know, Ashtanga Vinyasa is just one of just countless forms of yoga practice. And um, I mean, yoga practice can take the form of, you know, the way that you uh, relate from one moment to the next with the people that you're close to or even with complete strangers. And um, so it's something that you can be, you know, or it can take the form of chanting mm. um, and it can take the form of meditating. It can take the form of service to others it can take the form of intense, uh, intellectually sort of oriented study. It can take the form of intense self inquiry. So, um, and I think, I guess, what do all those different things, all those different modes of yoga have in common? I mean, <clears throat> if they help you, if those practices help you sort of be more present in the moment if mm -hmm. they connect you more to what's really unfolding around you you know then they're then they're 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 yoga 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. How do you know? <laughs> you you know, you know when it when it's you know. I mean, you can you can look back at at. I mean, so yoga said to sort of speed up the sort of. Um, you know that's your sort of psychological evolution you know and your you know evolute the evolution your sort of evolution in single human life and perhaps your evolution over you know over numerous lives if you believe in that kind of thing but it's, it's in any case it's said to sort of speed up your your psychological evolution mm-hmm. and um i think you know if you undertake a really potent yoga practice like ashtanga vinyasa really is and um and you you really sort of immerse yourself in it um you you feel that really you feel it really strongly mm-hmm. and it's just um it's so fascinating because you feel yourself uh you feel these sort of different it's sort of different layers of your mind sort of peeling off and as that happens your perspectives on things on your past and present experiences um, start shifting and can start, you know, shifting sort of more rapidly. And you start start sort of realizing things about yourself in the way that you can, in in the way that one does as one matures naturally, you know, Um, you know, as one sort of, you know, um, you know, as the, as the years roll by, as one sort of becomes an, an older person, but you, you feel that happening um, so fast that, you know, sometimes it can be like, like disorienting, mm. you know, but it's, if you sort of trust the process, um, then, you know, you can, you can sort of weather those disorienting episodes. And the, the whole thing is just so profoundly fascinating because you keep having these moments of looking back at yourself being like, oh, oh, Oh wow, this is what it's like to be alive, you know, and it it just seems to get better and better. Yeah. You know, as you realize you sort of how you, you you start start to sort of realize the truth of maybe different sorts of, you know, ideas or or or, you know, aphoristic you know, uh statements that one might make around yoga such as like, well, we're all connected. Or something like that, and you start to sort of realize what that means, and it just your sense of what that means every every year just gets sort of deeper and deeper, and it starts to be it starts to exceed anything that you formerly imagined that you might be able to experience, and it's so much more interesting than what you thought, even when you were fantasizing about what it might be, you know, and and that's when when that starts to happen, there's just no there's no struggle to practice. It's just what you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> what would you remind the world of? If we've forgotten anything, mm. what is something that you would like to... I mean, I forget my keys yourself? all the time. I don't know if I'm the best person to ask. <laughs> you know. Halfway to the workshop, you've got your keys. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, I think something that's that's just good to keep in mind is that we are, um, as that being human is a profound opportunity, and um, that it's possible for us to experience um, just an, an incredibly, I guess, an infinite array of possible uh, states of consciousness. You know, and some of them are so. Um, some of them are are so uh, illuminating, mm. you know, to, and um, and so so freeing and so exhilarating, and that there are uh, traditions that have evolved over, you know, countless generations of 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 teachings and of methods and of insights that um, can help us attain those those states. And, um, they're, they're really, especially in a place like Boulder, they're like, they're all around us, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, all we have to really do is, is to sort of connect with those earnestly and, uh, devote ourselves to, um, the, 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 the practices without sort of allowing our own, um, 
sort of, you know, mundane fallen consciousness to sort of intervene and sort of, you know, put some spin on it. And um, so there's, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's, um, there's incredible wisdom out there. There's incredible wisdom in these practices. Mm. And if we can sort of surrender into them, surrender our, uh, our judgments about them, then we can avail ourselves of that wisdom and that insight. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and last question: What could be one nugget of wisdom that you you've given a lot of nuggets? <laughs> you're getting a lot of nuggets, and they're amazing <laughs> for us to digest and to sit with. Mm-hmm. What would be one more nugget that you could offer to the listeners, to the practitioners, to the teachers, um, as they continue this walk on this path? Yeah. Well, Lisa, well, when you when you start going down a a, a, a path like yoga. Um, which is really just the path of life, you know, it's, um, and we're all going down the path, you know, whether we realize it or not. Um, there's, uh, we, there's, there's something that starts to happen within us, which, um, is described in yoga as the awakening of intelligence, the awakening, um, of buddhi. And, uh, that this intelligence, it, 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 when it starts to awaken, it's not, it's not that it, when it starts to awaken, we're suddenly enlightened or something. But when it starts to awaken, we have a little bit more discernment, a little bit more sort of um, sort of uh, discrimination, um, a little bit better sort of judgment, and it's a sort of intuitive intelligence, and it's it's really just the intelligence of our own hearts, you know. And if we can learn to sort of to sort of follow that in a way that. Um, we uh, allow ourselves to sort of step forward and in, into what we know is a sort of uh, nobler mode of existence. You know? um, then you know we can really we we can become we can become nobler beings. You know we can become um, uh, we we can become forms of ourselves that um, are. Uh, so much higher than anything that we, that our sort of uh, egocentric consciousness might want us to be, mm. you know? And um, so I guess what's, what's really sort of most important in following a path is to, you know, follow your heart and, mm. you know, do it with discernment. Like, you know, think about, you know, what, what kinds of patterns you're, you've fallen into and sort of what you're doing with your life and ask yourself whether or not you're really taking advantage of the potential of being a human being, you know, and uh, start trying to, to sort of take a little bit more advantage of the opportunity to be here in this human body and to sort of experience in the way that a human being can experience because it's, um, it's just, uh, it's, it's a brilliant existence. <laughs> You really are a professional human being. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Alan. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, revealing to us again yoga and, and sharing yourself so wholeheartedly. My pleasure. Thank you, brother. You can learn all about Ashtanga Vinyasa with Ty Landrum in Boulder, Colorado. He teaches daily classes at the Yoga Workshop on 21st Street and Pearl. If you're ever in Boulder, stop by the workshop and dive into the thread of Ashtanga. Be sure to check out his insightful blog and inspiring videos at tylandrum.com. My name is Alec Rubin, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Thank you for sharing with us your ears and your hearts. Please go on to iTunes or the podcast app and rate us with a loving five-starred review makes a huge difference. Check us out at yogarevealed.com for more information in addition to signing up for our email list. We have a lot of amazing gifts to share, so help us stay connected with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yoga Revealed podcast. Have an absolutely abundant rest of your day. Namaste, my friends. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.